I'm Rosa Mendez and I'm here at the number one Long Island broadcast, Monty Ferro. I have the best time ever! Hey, listen, Daddy. You're listening to the number one broadcast, Monty and Farrell, Daddy, in Long Island. The best pro wrestling broadcast of all time, I think. <laughs> Jimmy, I got to tell you, man, it feels good to be back on YouTube. It was uh, quite disappointing what happened to us, but we bounced back pretty fairly quickly. Well, what, what else would we do? We're almost at 5,000 subscribers. Well, speaking of that, man... Yeah. We need more members. Okay. What do you think we need to do to get the people of those 5,000 subscribers to come on and, and join the team as a Monty Nefaro member? Nudity is out of the question. Any other ideas? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I don't know. But what I, I do have a few ideas. Well, just like Prell, they should tell two friends, and they can tell two friends, and so on and so on. Hit the like, hit the subscribe. Check out all our content. But that's you know what? That's why you're you're the star of the show because guess what? Members get special content. Even we spoke about it. Farrell came to me one day and he goes, Man, what's the deal? I can't even watch some of these videos because I'm not a member. And I said, There you go, Farrell. You gotta be a member because this is what the members get. They get free content nice. that none of the other fans that watch this show get. That's right. You get Free autographs from some of these wonderful stars that come in, right? Nice. All you do is you go to the MNP webpage, or, right, our own page, yeah. and shoot us an email and say, hey, man, I want a picture of Tommy Rich. I want a picture of whatever. And, boy, that's we on its way. We give them their choice. That's right. We rock. We do rock. And you need to rock, too. Join. Do you treat your dog as part of the family? <laughs> well, so do we. So why not celebrate your pup's birthday with the ultimate party box? Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Party Pup Info, and let us make your pup's party or any celebration perfection. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of This Week in Pro Wrestling History. This is Bruce, and I'm here with the main man, the player, Betty Scala. What's up, Betty? Yeah, you know, Bruce not doing so good. It turns out that the uh, the girlfriend is uh, hooked up to a machine that keeps her alive. Oh, yes, yeah, refrigerator. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's like the one I heard the other day. How do you how do you get a fat woman into bed? How's that? Piece of cake. <laughs> so, Hopefully, she's easy as pie, right? <laughs> oh. So I don't think we should go down this route too too in depth. We might be here a while, <laughs> and we might not get a we might get our content a little bit censored. But get uh, censored in the third week would not be a good thing. <laughs> so hey, so how was your week? How uh, how was Dan and Betty this week? It really good. Yeah, we got got an uh, uh, indie guy coming on this week. His name is uh, Donald J. Bitdon, who is a I believe two thousand four graduate of. Uh, Jimmy Valiant's Boogie's Wrestling Camp. So anybody who's been wrestling for 20 years, you know they have a, a ton of great stories. Looking forward to, uh, to chatting with them tomorrow. How was, that, how was the Harvey Wickleman interview? Very, very good. Bruno Lauer's a great guy. You know, tons of great stories. Um, really, really, really nice guy. I, I asked him who's going to run for president in 2028, and if so, because he's an alderman in his, um, his hometown of Walsh, Mississippi. So he's, he comes up for re-election in 2028. 25. So I, I volunteer to be on his campaign team for that. But, you know, if 
he wants to go all the way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll definitely help him out. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then in 2032, it's The Rock, right? Isn't that the way the other? Oh yeah, right? they got to keep that wrestling connection going, right? Nice. So if you don't know what we're talking about, Dan and Betty in the ring is re, re, when does it come live? It goes live every Tuesday afternoon. It, we record usually uh, with a couple of exceptions. We record on uh, Tuesday evenings at seven o'clock from seven to eight. Uh, Dan usually has it uploaded on uh, Podbean and a variety of other uh, uh, audio uh, pod, uh, platforms by, uh, I would say, like nine o'clock, nine thirty. And then it usually drops on uh, Monty and the Farrah the next, after, uh, next evening at, I believe, ten o'clock. And while we're on the subject of that, Money and the Pharaoh can be seen every Thursday live on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook at 9 p.m. And uh, what happens at 8 p.m. every Thursday? We, you, myself, uh, Phil, and uh, Jimmy Farrow all vie for the World's Championship on this week in professional wrestling. Yeah, so far the title has changed hands weekly. Yes. I'm still smarting over that last last one, though. I, I really think I should have been you know been the first two-time champion but hopefully this week hey well listen i i lost by a john polos yeah so. Damn polos oh, so. if, if you don't uh if you haven't seen that episode it was absolutely hilarious and i would highly recommend and not, not just for wrestling if you want a good laugh i would highly re recommend you check that episode out yeah i think i took one for the team on that one <laughs> you, you you took a ton of them for the team but let's get going. We're talking about this week in wrestling from, let's see, it would be October 17th through October 22nd. Uh, we're, uh, that's the week we're going to be covering, and we're going to start in 1983. Right. We're, uh, so, yeah, Dateline, New, uh, October 17th, 1983, New York, New York. The Masked Superstar defeated Bob Backlund, who was a champion, uh, by countout in the main event at Madison Square Garden. And Bill Eady, the Masked Superstar, what, what can you say about that guy? I mean, he was Bolo Mongo. He was a super machine. He was Demolition Axe. I mean, a guy over a period of 20-plus years constantly, constantly reinvented himself. And in my opinion, he is on the Mount Rushmore of Masked Wrestlers, along with Mil Mascaras. Uh, the Intelligent Sensational Destroyer, and John Tullos. Actually, no, not John Tullos. Actually, I would say Mr. Wrestling, too. But And this was a huge angle uh, that started when, when Superstar uh, injured. So Eddie Gilbert, uh, very young Eddie Gilbert, was a prelim guy in WWF, came back from an injury, uh, and I believe he wrestled Superstar, who gave him one of those uh, deadly you talk about a finishing hold. Nobody was kicking out of that spinning neck breaker of uh, superstars. So uh, Backlund attempted to uh, assist Gilbert, and for his troubles with it, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, he got a spinning neck breaker on the uh, on the concrete floor. So that led to this match at the Garden, and uh, led to a second match the uh, the following month, where uh, Backlund actually he he won it. So you know, Mass Superstar got uh, got two uh, title shots. It's really a shame. Um, you know, nowadays they would not think twice of putting a belt on a mass wrestler, but it was kind of one of those things back then. It was just an understanding that you didn't do that. And and what a shame because I think Superstar would have been a great world's champion. And Bill Eady, I just think the guy is a, a true legend of professional wrestling. Yeah, and he definitely deserves to be in that Hall of Fame. 
I mean, you're talking about going from the early seventies and he was real. Well, how long was uh demolition in the picture? Well, you know, we're, we're into the nineties. Yeah, and- I mean, they started it. Let's see. It would have been 87, 88. I think they started. Yeah, they, right. Uh, and then they went, yeah, right into the early nineties. And he's, he's still wrestled in the Indies. I think he's, I think he's about 75 now, maybe 77. And I would, I would imagine he's been in the ring in the last couple of years. Yeah, I would have loved to see the days of him teaming with uh, Nikolai Volkov as the Mongols. I, uh, I oh, didn't yeah. realize that until only a few years ago when I got to see a, a clip of the tag team. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> but but that's mass superstar gimmick. He just had the you know the stars around the mask. He was legit. I mean, he was one of the. I mean, he was the real deal. And I mean, wherever he went, he won titles. He wrestled on top. Just, just a great wrestler. He was in that last era of where wrestling was still real. Yes, very believable. The the angle with Backlund was a, a a great angle, and they worked it to perfection. So we're going to move on to October seventeenth in nineteen ninety nine in Cleveland, Ohio, in the very first tag team ladder match. The Hardy Boys defeated Edge and Christian to win not only $100,000, but also the services of Harry Ronalds. Also on the card, a very legendary match. China defeated Jeff Jarrett to win the Intercontinental Championship, making her the first woman to ever hold a, that men's title. So, wow, what a, what a night. I mean, the Hardy Boys, Edge and Christian ladder match, that led into the TLC matches, which are, are legendary. I mean, the, the, all those guys are still relevant today. It's pretty crazy. Right, yeah, except unfortunately for China. But I got to say, and I don't want to speak, you know, speak bad of the dead, but I was never a China fan. I was definitely not in favor of her competing against the men. I, I would have been fine if she was, and I do believe she won the women's title once. Um, I would have, you know, seen her as a dominant, you know, give her something that they're giving Roman Reigns right now, you know, as far as the women go. But I, I just, just my own opinion, I just, I was not a fan of her competing against the men and uh, apparently some of the men weren't big fans of it either i actually enjoyed the, the silent china the bodyguard china is that that intimidating woman in the background more than the uh than the the last few years of her trying to be the diva right and uh, uh like i said you know don't want to speak badly of the dead but promos were not definitely were not her, her strong point no no she should have had somebody doing the mic work she I, she was if she kept her mouth, if she didn't open her mouth, she she just looked so intimidating. But once she she had that, she had a sweet voice. It didn't fit the character. Right. You know, and we've constantly, even on Dana and Benny, and I think on this show, the the absence nowadays, or even on the last twenty years of managers. So you know, we had we had like we said, Bruno Lauer last week. If if China had a Bruno Lauer or a Bobby Heenan or a Jimmy Hart, anybody like that, to do her talking, it would have just really added to to her character. I believe she wouldn't have had to do any talking. Yeah, exactly. Like Abdullah the Butcher, you know, there was a reason he was quiet. As I've gotten to know Larry, like he he uh, he's a funny. He's got that that high pitched squeaky voice. But you know what? If he had if he came out talking like that, he would have never been Abdullah the Butcher. Right. You know, it's a good thing Mike Tyson could back up his words with his fist because the minute he opened his mouth, like, no, nah, that can't be coming from that guy. But I mean, don't ever tell him that. 
Oh, I would I would never tell him that. He actually uh he's he grew up not too far from here in Catskills. Catskills, right? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, I have friends of mine who went to school with him, and they said he he was not he wasn't even five ten. So I mean, could you imagine that that little that guy was the the toughest sob on the planet. That guy was walking dynamite at nineteen. Right. Unreal. So let's move on to. 2016, the same date. Goldberg returns to the WWE after a 12-year absence and accepts Brock Lesnar's challenge for a match which took place at the Survivor Series. In my opinion, I never thought that Goldberg was going to come back to WWF after that uh, debacle at WrestleMania with Brock Lesnar. But you know, here we are, 12 years later, he came back. Yeah, and and I was okay with this one. I I just was not okay with the the rest of the iterations. I just I I think they overplayed the whole Goldberg thing. I mean, granted, the guy's in great shape, but you know, I had this thing, and I always I'm a huge baseball fan. Um, I always use baseball analogies, and I'm I'm a huge Yankee fan, and and Don Mattingly was probably my all time favorite baseball player. And I believe right now he might be 60. And I mean, guy in his era was one of the best hitters ever. But I mean, five years ago, he would have been 55. And, you know, putting him up against any one of the, you know, the dominant pitchers, he would have looked pathetic. I mean, there's, there's a time for a career. And then there's a time to, you know, make room for the the younger guys. And I think that's, you know, any, anytime you see one of these older guys doing this, yeah, I in my opinion, it's at the expense of somebody younger who could really use the opportunity. That's again, that's just my opinion. No, I have I have to agree. I think some of the, the there's a lot of oh, we're running into a situation where we have a lot of over fifty wrestlers that are taking up the time and not not really developing this next generation as quickly as, as I would like. You know, we're not I, we don't have that a lot of that twenty five to forty year old wrestler right now, and those are the ones we need. Uh, we do have a lot of them, but we don't have as many as we need. And uh, I think if we got the Adam Copelands and the uh, Christian Cages and I'd say even the Rey Mysterios and some of the other guys, make them more, more in a legend, make them more legendary and bring them back only for special occasions and let these these young guys take over. You know, Bruce, really, now that you say that, I think that's a great idea to have. Like, you know, the, the PBA, the bowling, the pro bowling, they have a seniors tour. You know, it's any once you're over 50, you can bowl on the seniors tour. Now you're still welcome to bowl on the regular PBA tour, but maybe do something like that. I mean, have a uh, a senior or a, you know a legends division, and you have the edges and the Christians and AEW, or you have a Goldberg or anybody like that who wants to keep competing. But you know, it's like old timers day back in the day at Yankee Stadium. I remember, uh, you know. I was still, I'm old enough to have seen DiMaggio play in the old timers game. I remember one time he actually hit a ground rule double, but it took him about a minute and a half to get to second base. Um, you want to, you want to look at these guys with fondness and remember when, you know, back, back in the day, 20 years ago when they were, you know, they were great. But the reality is you're not the same at 50 as you are at 30. It just doesn't happen. Unfortunately, I wish, I wish that wasn't true. And you're not fighting time. Yeah. But like it's like Jim Ross says, Father Time doesn't do any jobs. <laughs> so let's move on to the 18th 
1993 in my neck of the woods. Poughkeepsie. And somewhere on October 18th, 1993, Popeye Doyle was probably asking somebody if they were uh, if they picked their feet in Poughkeepsie. I don't know if you remember that from uh, The French Connection. No. Great movie. Gene Hackman. Um, so uh, on the live edition of Monday Night Raw, uh, Randy Savage confronts Crush over allegations that uh, that Savage had betrayed his uh, his friend by convincing him to compete against then WWF champion Yokozuna a few months prior. And it, it appeared that they had reconciled, but then Crush would go on to attack Savage, uh, would set up a feud that actually uh, stretched out to the, the following WrestleMania, WrestleMania 10. And now I was normally a fan of baby faces, but I actually liked the heel Crush. I did. Uh, when he showed, I think he showed up that night with a black leather jacket instead of his, uh, his orange, uh, whatever, his orange outfit with his flowing mullet. And now Brian Adams, not to be confused with uh, the musician, he had a, I, and you know, I'd like you to chime in on this. He had a fairly decent career, but I always felt he could have accomplished more. Um, he was uh, with the uh, NWO. He was with the Nation of Domination. Wasn't he, so he, he uh, World Class Championship Wrestling? Isn't that where he, uh, where he broke in? No, I think that was Brian Adias. Oh. No, uh, I'm not really sure with Brian Adams, but yeah, he was with the DOA, the NWO, the you know the uh, NOD. Just had a bunch of alphabet soup there, but yeah, and always good. I mean, I, I remember when, when uh, and then I remember yes, the, the demolition uh, crush, and then I remember uh, the purple outfit. Like, yeah, that, that, that's what I. But I thought I remembered him early, you know, earlier days, but I, you know, it's in world class. But who, you know, these guys he could have been. You know, I, I that that's going to be something I check out after the show. Now, when he went to WCW and he teamed up with uh, Brian Clark, aka Adam Bomb. As Chronic, they won the, I believe they won the WCW championship, tag team championship twice. Uh, like I said, the guy was decent, but, you know, given his his size and his look, and he wasn't bad in the ring, I just think he could have accomplished more. He died very, very young. I think he was uh, 43. Uh, I think he was right right here in my backyard, Tampa, Florida, with the, he mixed a bunch of drugs, which I think they were all prescription drugs, which each taken by themselves would have been okay, but the mixture uh, killed him. Sad. Yeah, let's uh, let, let's hit one more topic, and then we're gonna have to take a quick break. So All right. Let's move on to 2016 in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, probably my my least ever favorite professional wrestler, James Ellsworth, is unsuccessful in his attempt. Thank God to uh, capture the WWE World Championship from then-champion AJ Styles. I, I was never a fan of Chinless McGillicuddy. I mean, he was a decent indie, indie wrestler, I'm sure. But, I mean, he never belonged in the WWE, except maybe to be squashed by somebody. I mean, he he was, to me, he was a, a Silvano Souza or a Frankie Williams. I mean, he was that caliber. He shouldn't have really gotten anything past that. And he had that catchphrase, uh, any man with two hands has a fighting chance. Unfortunately for him, um, unless you use those two hands to send a 16-year-old girl a dick pic. That's why we don't see James Ellsworth anymore. What's he riding in a jail cell somewhere? No, I don't think he is. He just I think he's back in the and he's knocking. He's still a relatively young guy. I don't think he's even 40 yet, but that was the end of his uh, gig with WWE. As it should have been. <laughs> right. 
I mean, he was, uh, I was actually friends with him on Facebook. I mean, the guy was living the life. I mean, they, he was flying all over the world. I'm sure they were paying him halfway decent money. I mean, definitely more than he was making it as an Indian in Maryland. Um, but yeah, it just, uh, fame, uh, went right to his head. It actually went, probably went down to his head in this case. Right. That sounds like it. Sounds like it. We want to, uh, want to set this off to a quick break. Absolutely. So to quote the great Marvin Berry, the lead singer from the Starlighters in the movie Back to the Future, we'll be right back. So nobody, well, y'all nobody don't go nowhere. M&J Video Games and Collectibles. Sport and non-sport cards, wrestling items, autographed items. We buy, sell, and trade. M&J Video Games and Collectibles, located at 1049 Queen Street, Southington, Connecticut. Call us at 1-860-479-9223 or 860-93-GAMES. M&J, video games and collectibles. The Monty and the Pharaoh Show is brought to you by... Because wine is your second favorite four-letter word. California wine... New York attitude. Good fucking wine. Yeah. All right. Well, to quote the great Jack Nicholson playing the character of Melvin Udall in the movie Good As It Gets, did you miss me? Well, here I am, sweetheart. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. As you know, this is This Week in Wrestling with Bruce and the Player Betty. So let's move on to October 19th in 1985 in San Juan, Puerto Rico. All righty. So Carlos Colon, uh, the father of um, Carlito, actually defeated Abdullah the Butcher. We were just talking about him to win the WWC Universal Heavyweight Championship. And uh, now uh, Carlos Colon won this title 26 times. And not so coincidentally, he, he did on the promotion, uh, you know, Go figure that one. And uh, so th there is no truth to the rumor that the Red Cross was at ringside for this match as uh, Cologne and Butcher lost a combined total of 27 pints of blood. Um, and during his, we were just talking about Larry Shreve, a.k.a. Abdullah the Butcher. Uh, he was actually registered with Arthur Price of England, where he, where he would procure his knives and forks. <laughs> That's fun. So how many times did those guys have a match? I mean, what, they fought monthly pretty much for years. They probably fought as much as uh, SD Jones and Johnny Rods. They were like, you know, bitter enemies. But, I mean, they were bleeders. You were not going to see a match. Well, you, you're not going to see any match with Abdullah without blood. I mean, that guy's forehead looks like a map of Zanzibar. Yeah, it really does. No, so but that's, I mean, just forehead, another. His, his forehead doesn't look too pretty either. No, and you know, really, I, I mean, I am old enough to, and I'll take a, take our fans back on a, you know, a, a time travel. 1968 was when I first started watching wrestling. George Steele, that's when George Steele first came into the WWF. And, you know, George Steele, they turned him into a caveman, but he was actually very eloquent when, uh, when he first showed up and he had a match against a very young enhancement talent by the name of Carlos Colon. And uh, at the, at the commentary desk was Ray Morgan uh, and doing color commentary actually was Bruno San Martino. 
and uh, 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 Steel attacked Cologne, threw him out of the ring. Bruno helped try to help Cologne get his uh, jacket off. And Steel, of course, Steel attacked Bruno. And, of course, that led to a sellout at Madison Square Garden, which, I mean, I am always amazed at Vince McMahon Sr., how they concocted these angles, you know, bringing these heels in, working these angles and, you know, selling out the garden month after month after month. I don't think there's any way if Roman Reigns headlined a, a card at the garden that they would sell the, the garden out two consecutive months. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The uh, Abdullah Butcher, when his career started in like 1958 from what I read. The, another guy that, I mean, he, when you're that big and that heavy and that bald, I think you, you don't really, you don't, you're not perceived to age at the same rate as some, because, you know, somebody else, you're going to see them, you know, their hair turn gray or they're going to start going bald. Like, like Cena's gone bald now, you know, he always had that same look. And so, yeah, I mean, he, he wrestled forever. Yeah. That's crazy. And, He's got like a 60, 70 year career. It's un- unbelievable. Unbelievable. Let's move on to 1990 in New York, New York. We have Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig, and the Texas Tornado, Kerry Von Erich, wrestling through a double DQ at a WW house show at MSG. Also on that card, the Hart Foundation retains the WWF tag team titles against Rhythm and Blues, Greg Valentine, and the Honky Tonk Band. So let's start with talk first talking about Mr. Perfect and and Texas Tornado, two legends that left this uh left this world way, way, way too early. Yeah, Kerry Von Erich, you know, after his accident, you know, I know that that prevented him really from moving up into that world title picture and then the legal issues and Kurt Henning, another one I really thought he was gonna be a, a more of a world champion. Both were world champions, obviously Henning in AWA and Kerry in the NWA, but for some reason, that the perception once they got to WWE really was that that mid card level, and they just never really got beyond that. You know, I I I totally agree with you. Either one of these guys could have could have carried the belt, the main belt. You know, you had perfect in AWA as champion, good champion in AWA. Oh, I you know, Terry. I love. I that's where I became a Kurt Hennig fan when he that with the oh Dodgers, yeah when he hit up Bockwinkle there. Right. And then, you you know, and uh, Kerry briefly won the NWA title. But uh, I mean, how many times did he have the uh, the WCC, you know, the world class version of it? And I think it was just a matter of um, that the because this is the, you know, only what, six years into the expansion, the, the worldwide expansion of the WWF. And the roster was so stacked with talent. I think that's it. I mean, if. If it was a different time and place, either one of these guys was going to be on top. Uh, just a matter of, you know, they were they were in the the right or the wrong place at the wrong time. But, yeah, amazing, amazing talent, both of these guys. You know, it's kind of, as you're mentioning that, it's only six years into the expansion. And in my mind, WWF was so huge already at that point because I, I was so young. I never, I really didn't feel the expansion, even though I was watching World Class. I was watching the NWA when I could, you know, watching the AWA. I didn't really get to feel that expansion. Right. No, I, I, I gotcha. But yeah, I mean, they just, you know, Vince McMahon would go from territory to territory, you know, suck up all the talent. You know, you got Steamboat from uh, Mid-Atlantic. He got, got, got Piper from there, Valentine. He got uh, JYD and uh, Hacksaw from uh, 
from Mid-South. I mean, he just went through all the territories. I guess Buddy Rose maybe from uh, Portland. Just, I mean, the, the, they were, I mean, it was a, just a, a huge roster of amazing talent. And these guys kind of just were by, just by, you know, luck of the draw, they were kind of in the upper mid-card, not, not really in the main event. Yeah, and then the, the other events that we were talking about there, the Hart Foundation facing Greg Valentine and the Honky Tonk Man. You know, the, the Hart Foundation, legendary tag team. I wasn't as big of a fan once they once they broke up, but I definitely, definitely enjoyed the uh you know, enjoyed them as, as a tag team. Greg Valentine and the Honky Tonk Man. What can you say about Greg Valentine other than that he was a world champion that never got his championship? Greg Valentine was so relevant in this uh the seventies, the eighties. And uh, you know, up into up into the nineties. I don't think people realize how much he brought into the game. You know, that, that Yeah, and an, another guy that I'm sorry. Yeah, he was second generation, right? Or was he third generation? Yeah, no, he was Johnny Johnny Valentine's son, legit. And uh yeah, again, another guy that if he actually had defeated Backland, um he was there was a couple of guys that if they had beat Backland, I would not have been the least bit surprised. He's one of them. Um the other one would be Morocco, and the third one would be Patera. If any one of those guys had beat Backlund, and and even as a transitional champion, I, it wouldn't have shocked me in the least. So let's move on to October nineteenth in two thousand three in Indy Rocks Beach, Florida. Got a little bit of a sad one here. Yeah, and actually, that is Indian Rocks Beach is my favorite beach. Uh, it's about a half an hour from my house. You know, Clearwater Beach is also about a half an hour, but it's 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 way, way overcrowded. Indian Rocks Beach is very, very secluded, beautiful beach. But sadly, that's where uh, Road Warrior Hawk passed away due to a heart failure at the very young age of 46. Uh, Mike Hextron, uh, part of a, the Road Warriors, in my opinion, if they're not the greatest team of all time, they got to be number one or they got to be one A or number two. Uh, I also love the Valiant Brothers, but those to me, those are the two the two best teams ever, but uh, they won everywhere they went and they are the only team to ever win the NWA, AWA and WWF uh, tag team titles. How many times on, on Saturday night uh, watch them run to the ring? I mean, un- actually annihilate their opponents with the, uh, what was it called? The, uh, the doomsday device. Doomsday device. And, and then I felt so sorry for their opponents and then uh, visit Tony Schiavone or, as Jimmy Valiant called him, Tony Shivanto, for a quick promo. And I can hear, still hear Hawk snarling it to the camera saying, we snack on danger and dine on death. We and he's had a couple other ones. Danger and dine on death. Wow. So, yeah. They, yeah that, the only again, people I think they can't say that they are a top tag team are people that never saw them. I mean, yeah. the, the Road Warrior Pop is still called the Road Warrior Pop for a reason. Where those guys entered an arena that was ridiculous i mean i same thing i remember watching them when i was i was a kid and i mean they were so so much larger than life i mean uh absolutely my favorite tag team ever you know the, the spike shoulder pads they just looked dangerous they looked they looked like they were going to kick the shit out of you and they did well i mean in in reality in a, in a shoot they probably kind of kicked the shit out of just about anybody yeah it's Definitely, definitely the my favorite tag team of all time. I, I think most people who who got to see them, they have to agree that that was one of the top tag teams ever. Um, unless they oh, saw yeah. them in the later years with the uh, oh with the the 
the ventriloquist dummy. That was, a, that was the only part that I really didn't enjoy. Otherwise, yeah. they, were, they were awesome. And and the uh, the oh the the rehab thing with with Hawk that wasn't cool. They that were a little a little bit too uh, too real there. Yeah, they. I mean, sometimes they make these angles like a little bit too close to home. So let's move on to 2003. During the no in Baltimore, Maryland, during the No Mercy pay per view, Vince McMahon defeats Stephanie McMahon in an I Quit match. The Maryland State Athletic Commission prohibited intergender matches, but the WWE paid the fine in advance. This led to 254,000 pay per view buys. Or yeah, this led to 254,000 pay per view uh, buys. So. In 03, wasn't that after they had already kind of said, hey, this isn't real, but they still at that point, the athletic commission was still banning? Yeah, I was, yes, you're correct. And I honestly, I was very surprised to uh, to read that. I was thinking like, wait a minute, why is the Maryland State that State Athletic Commission even getting involved at this point? Um, but yeah, they uh, they actually had to pay a fine. And I guess it, they, you know, they, they knew that the, well, a quarter of a million pay-per-view buys at even say like 40 bucks, you know, some quick math, that's uh, $10 million. Yeah. Um, I, I guess what, well, even if the fine was, you know, 5,000 bucks, it's a drop in the bucket, but yeah. Now, again, we, we talked about China earlier. I am not, not a fan of uh, intergender matches. And I mean, you got a father wrestling or fighting his own daughter in an I quit match. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it, it you know, drew some good money. It, and I, I'm, you know, the McMahons were the one and only exception of a, a promoter getting involved in, in, in the storylines and it making sense. It never worked anywhere else. It did work with, with them, but I just wasn't a big fan of this. I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, the, the, those creepy, the really weird, creepy angles. Uh, they, this is like the Katie Vick era. This is when like Vince McMahon wanted to uh, be the, illegitimate father of the of her baby you know they, as, as much as people give Vince McMahon credit for being a great booker great and creative he also had some warped ideas that gladly somebody shut down right yeah I mean they 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 laid their their share of eggs I mean like uh what's his name Mark Henry uh supposedly impregnating uh <laughs> what's her name May Young and she gave birth I mean that that's just although the funny ridiculous. part was um in the match where the Johnny Knoxville was facing Sami Zayn at WrestleMania, and there was a big hand at ringside that ended up coming in and slapping Sami Zayn or Johnny Knoxville, I forgot which one. The greatest meme that I saw was Mark Henry's kid all grown up. Somebody didn't like that. Yeah, it's just, I mean, that kind of stuff. I mean, like you said, um, you know, and it's really funny. Um, I write I write for pro wrestling stories I have for a number of years. And um, um, I wrote a story about our dear friend, Mike Halleck, shortly after he passed away. And I think I got, it, it was been, last time I checked, it's been read about 3,000 times. And, um, you know, but then you have, you have something like uh, I wrote about Katie Vick. And uh, Katie Vick, my, I, I wrote a story about Katie, the whole Katie Vick angle, and that's been read 160,000 times. And my, my second most widely read story was about Buff, Buff Bagwell, 
who is in the picture dictionary under well, it's train wreck and hot mess. And I mean, it's been that's a close second, close to 160,000. So people people just have a, a you know, they have a, a predilection for smut and, and pulp. And, and, you know, sometimes so that I guess if that is what makes money, I guess that's what you have to go with. Lost the card. I had it brought up. Okay, so next we have on uh, October nineteenth in two thousand four, ta- Taboo Tuesday, the historic pay per view in which stipulations and opponents were decided by the viewers. So uh, on that card, there were there were a few matches. I'm going to bring it back up here. I, I had it up and then I lost it. But uh, overall, what did you think of uh, ooh, what's going on here? I can't bring it back up, uh, unfortunately, with the with the browser going. Um, but yeah, this was a, basically the fans got to choose the stipulations of the individual matches as they went along. The one that sticks out in my in my mind is there was a Eugene Eric Bischoff match. Uh, with, you know the the net, the uh, uncle fighting the nephew in a, I'll believe it was something like a dress match or something like that. Or, but uh, overall, good concept. I don't think it came across as well as as it could have. But uh, you know, it just gave the fans an opportunity to be involved in the pay per view. <laughs> I guess when I, when I read that, because I, I looked at the card and I looked at the stipulations, and I, my first reaction was, well, how did the how did the the you know the wrestlers prepare for that? Because how do you not know you know until the bell who your opponent's going to be? So I, I wonder, you know, the, my first reaction was, how legitimate was the boat? Well, you know, was was it already predetermined what the boat was going to be? Did, you know. Did they fix the vote, or did they have uh, Price Waterhouse monitoring this thing? <laughs> no, it is the WWE, and you're right; it's probably some type of work because they, you know, they they might have gotten had a good idea of which way the fans were going to vote and kind of push it that way. Or yeah, yeah, maybe maybe if uh, like you said, maybe they had an idea how the fans were going to vote, and if they indeed did vote that way, they could publish the results. But if they didn't, they were they were going to vote that way anyway. Because you, you, I don't see how you could prepare adequately for you know for anything like that unless you you knew what you were going to do. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's let's go through uh, let's go through one more and then let's take another quick break there and then uh, we'll get through the rest of them. So it, all right, we're move on to October twentieth, and this one is in nineteen fifty eight in Seminole County, Florida. Man, we got a lot going on in Florida, don't we? Oh yeah, always. So we're having a little technical survey. Uh, this was the day that Scott Hall was born in Seminole County, Florida. Now, another guy was talking about Brian, Brian Adams before. Scott Hall had a great career. Um, I do believe that his drug issues prevented him from becoming a world champion. He should have been a world champion. There's no doubt about it. He, he could have been in WWE. He could have been in, in WCW. But my, and my first memory of him was uh, with uh, Kurt Hennig as his tag team partner. In the AWA, very very good t- tag team. Ball. Yes, and then uh, well, he wasn't he like a almost like uh, was he Starship or something like that or didn't just, he have almost like a, like a like an an Indian American uh, Native American angle? Not that I remember. I just I remember I just remember him being so much bigger than Henning, and I you know he was uh, larger than life. He actually it seemed in that era he was actually bigger than when he when he got the WCW and and WWF. It seemed like once he got right, he, he right. leaned out a little bit. Yeah, uh, and then he jumped to WCW um, as the Diamond Stud, uh, I believe managed by uh, 
DDP, who also managed uh, Vinny Vegas, who ironically Kevin Nash, one of his horrible gimmicks. Um, and then he had his uh, iconic WWF run as, as, as Razor Ramon. And I mean, for, for a guy from Florida, I mean, American is American gets. I thought he did a great job as Razor Ramon. I mean, he made it very believable. Or at least, yeah. <laughs> Mi trabajo para usted. No way. Um, but then uh, he jumped back to WCW and he issued the line that uh, was one of the most famous in wrestling history. When he came back, he said, you know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here, which led to the formation of the NWO. That was uh, one of the greatest angles in, in wrestling history, too. So I mean, Absolutely. Let's move on to 1964 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. All right. Yeah, uh, this is one of my one of my all-time favorite wrestlers. Uh, Maurice Mad Dog Vachon defeated Vern Gagne to win the um, AWA World Heavyweight Championship. And now, similar to Carlos Colon, who won the WWC title like 8,000 times, you know, Gagne, Gagne owned the W uh, the AWA, and he I believe he did have 10 runs, but he would let somebody win the title from him, and he would he thought there was money in the chase, not always being on top, which I think had a lot of value. So uh, Bashan actually won the title a number of times. Um, he was billed from being from uh, Algeria, but in reality, he was from Montreal, and he competed in wrestling in the 1948 Olympics. And he was a lot like Baron Von Raschke. Uh, they they were brawlers and used very little of their skills. But both uh, Von Raschke was, an, I believe, an All-American at the University of Nebraska. When push came to shove, both of those guys were legit shooters, even though Raschke didn't look at it all. And Vashon uh, did not um, act it. But, yeah, he won the, uh, the AWA World Championship on five different occasions. I would say of, of the multiple time champions, anybody who's held a title for you know five times or more, probably the, the least heralded uh, multiple time world champion. Um, and sadly, he lost one of his legs as a result of a hit and run accident. And uh, leave it to wrestling to even work that into an angle because uh, he was sitting at ringside in a match with uh, Diesel, Kevin Nash, against Shawn Michaels. Diesel actually yanked the leg right out from under uh, Bashan. Try to use it on Michaels. I think Ma Michaels actually uh, turned the tables and used it on Nash and used it to win the match. But you know, leave it to wrestling, right? So Mad Dog Luna, Luna's dad. So that's the other the other thing he gave us was Luna Bashan. <laughs> yes, yes, sir. And his brother Paul, I think, is still around. With a, the butcher. Bashan, it's kind of he he was a legendary wrestler, but it's funny you don't hear as much about him. And when you do, it tends to be the, the crazy stories, uh, hanging out of an airplane or something like that. It's not a, <laughs> it, it's always something absolutely off the wall. So, you know, yeah, he was a bit of a character for sure. But uh, so, yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to 1996 in Indianapolis, Indiana, at the In, in Your House pay-per-view, Buried Alive. The Undertaker defeated Mankind in the first Buried Alive match. However, the executioner, the late great Terry Gordy, attacked Taker and replaced mankind in the and replaced mankind in the grave with the Undertaker. The show ends with the Taker's glove coming out of the ground, and we've seen we've seen that used so many times in uh, in promos since then. But 
Right. You know, you don't really yeah. And, and, with go ahead, the, I'm sorry. With me, the, the thing that sticks out most of this match, obviously, it was it was actually a decent match for, for what it was, mm-hmm. was really Terry Gordy. I don't really associate Terry Gordy with the WWE or WWF. I always think of him, you know, as uh, that, that free bird in WCW and NWA and, you know, just don't really... And I know he had that legendary Japanese career, uh, career in Japan, but uh, no, I don't really, I, I don't really think of him as a, a WWF performer. No, and it, 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 you know, following uh, what you said, he did have. So they, they, he came in with Michael Hayes as the Freebirds in 1984. I think they lasted one match, and then I believe they showed up late to a show, or they showed up drunk, or both. And they got fired. And this is 12 years later, uh, Gordy uh, came back. And what what the research that I did was that uh, Vince McMahon wanted him uh, masked as the executioner just in case he wasn't able to perform adequately and he didn't want to tarnish his legacy. And uh, I guess that happened because uh, even though this happened in October, I believe in December, uh, Taker beat him in some kind of stipulation match, and you never saw him again. And another guy, I mean, we, we're talking about guys that, that left way too early. I think Gordy died right after his 40th birthday. And, um, you know, legendary tag team wrestler, but he did win. I think if he wasn't the first, he was one of the first. Uh, after Bill Watts renamed Mid-South um, UWF, he was one of the first UWF heavyweight champions. Yeah, I remember. I, yeah, that's right. UWF. I forgot about them. Yeah, that was a. I the big champion of, that I remember from them was Doctor Death, Steve Williams. It seems like he held that title forever. Right. Yes. So we have to take a quick break. We actually should have taken one a few minutes ago, but uh, oh well, we'll, we'll figure it out in, in editing. So you want to take us out to a break? We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Sir. Ah. Manscape. Uh huh. Uh, you know. Have you tried the new equipment that's been sent? I'm afraid because it says Weed Whacker. I'm scared. Maven, Manscaped. What are you thinking about Manscaped, dude? Love it. it. What do you use it for? Necessity. What don't I use it for? Put it this way. The only hair I have on my entire body is these eyebrows. Yeah. That you see. These caterpillars racing to the middle of my nose. That's it. That is it. That's all all I have. And that's all I want. That's the So Manscaped. There's a must. We were talking before the show. There's nothing worse than just hair. Yeah. Right? Hair on a woman, hair on a man. It's just bad. Absolutely. And it's the one thing that the older I get, it starts growing more in unwanted areas. Absolutely. I hate it. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh Uh-oh. Just going to go out there. Oh, boy. Go for it. You're doing a deed. Yes. (laughs) Again, I don't want you to have to admit this because we... As men, we try not to admit this, but if you're going to oh, go do I the deed it. on a woman, I know would you rather going. have her be hairless or a little hair, racing stripe, or <laughs> racing stripe. full retro bush? <laughs> racing well, stripe. Retro bush is out. Yes, thank you. Retro bush is out. Yeah. Um, I don't mind a small, well-manicured landing strip. <laughs> Every now and then, if it's completely, and I'm talking like baby's ass bald, Mm. Then I, I start, where is that pedophilia line that yeah. I'm, that I'm, I don't, I don't wow. want to wander into that. That's very interesting. Like that. I never thought about wow. that. You're a smart dude. Holy yeah. shit. So if the landing strip is clean enough for the plane to go in smoothly, you're cool with that. If the landing strip is 
has like I said, well manicured. Yeah, you yeah. can see both sides. It's not like blinking lights on both sides of that. Plane? I just don't. I don't want. <laughs> you know, I don't want the shrubbery going off into yeah. unwanted areas on that. Gotcha. As well. Oh, yeah, look but, what you found. Ooh, I got to be all honest gotcha. though. Hey, the, ah. the, the older I get though, I don't. I think I don't think I can be as. Uh, <laughs> I found it! I found it! Have you ever gone down there and, like, just like she slowly brings down the underwear? What is retro? Absolutely. You're like, whoa! Wow! Like it pops out? Do you, like, walk out or what do you do? No, I muster through. I muster up the courage. He's a trooper. He's a trooper. Gotta give him an ace. Not all heroes wear capes. Yeah, I know. Listen, I couldn't say I couldn't say it. Well,. If you have the same beliefs as Maven does, Manscaped could help you. Absolutely. The weed whacker. Absolutely. What are you thinking? I'm thinking that I may have to, like, you know, go in a room, close the door, and hang out with the weed whacker for a little while. Yeah, I think you're a retro guy, aren't you? I like 70s adult films, if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but with that, we're going to take a quick Batman. commercial break. and anyway. be back with this wrestling icon, Maven. We will see you in a drop kick second. Uh -oh. A drop kick Hi, it's Josh from Under the Table Hot Sauce. I'm here with my friend, the star of the show, Jimmy Farrow. Yeah, what's up, JB? Nah, nothing. It's been a hot summer, and for all your barbecue needs, you can go to UndertheTableHotSauce.com. 13 unique flavors to choose from, created and bottled in a Long Island kitchen. UndertheTableHotSauce.com. Let's go chow, JB. Let's do it. All the flavor, twice the burn. We are back, and as they do in wrestling, we are going home. All right, let's talk about October 20th in 2000. WCW releases Bret Hart almost three years to the day after signing him. Hart was suffering from the post-concussion syndrome after being kicked in the head by Bill Goldberg. Hart retired shortly thereafter. Well, what can you say to this? You know, Bret never... It seemed like once he got to WCW, even before the kick from Goldberg, he just wasn't he wasn't the player he was in WWF. Uh, it seemed like he was never going to get the power. He, he wasn't going to he was he was never going to ascend to the level of Hogan in that company. Um, the thing with Bill Goldberg, we, we've all seen, you know, kicks to the head that have probably been worse than that. And it, it's sad that that ended his career. But uh you know, concussions are part of the game. Obviously, Bill Goldberg wasn't trying to hurt the guy. He just was, he was green at that point. Um, I think at this point, Brent should forgive him. I don't think, I don't think Goldberg, you know, intentionally did it as much of an idiot as, as he was. He just was, he, he was green. And that's what he was, he was told to go in and dominate. So, you know, Bruce, if, if Bill Clinton was here right now, he would say, you just read my mind. Um, because everything you said was what was exactly what I was thinking. Um, you know, I never, and I, I was a huge Bret Hart fan in WWF. Um, and I was actually excited when I, I thought that, or I heard that he was coming to uh, WCW and I just, I had such high hopes and he just never fit in. It just, it never quite worked. He looked awkward there. He didn't look happy. I mean, not that he was, I wouldn't say like he mailed it in because he was the, the consummate professional and he always did his job. But, you just, you just didn't. I mean, he didn't look happy. He, he, he looked out of place. Yeah, absolutely. Was not he? He wasn't. He was WWF and Stampede. He was not WCW. Right. Let's move on to 2002. What was going on there? 
Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, WWE World Champion uh, Triple H defeated Intercontinental Champion Kane in a champion versus champion unification match. And the IC belt was retired after 33 years, uh, only to be reinstated a year later. And it's a shame because the Intercontinental Championship was at one time, it was one of the most prestigious titles during the territory era. And I'm going back to 1979 when it was first created. Um, I, I place it right up there with the NWA Missouri Heavyweight Championship. It was it, it was the closest thing to a world title. Um, it, it, when you were a Randy Savage or a Tito Santana or a Morocco or a Pedro, you were you were one and a very small notch below the world champion. Um, and yeah, it, Hogan and, and Savage. I mean, yeah, it was the secondary title forever. Right. And and sadly, um, it, it turned into a prop for the last 20 years. And uh, I mean, thankfully now with uh, Gunther, uh, WWE has decided to elevate it again. And I think Gunther, I mean, as, as much as I'm not really a huge fan of the current product, I think he's done a, he's done a fantastic job to make that title relevant again. So uh, in your opinion, if you were going to rank the four WWE singles titles right now, how would you rank them in order of prestige? Um, I rank the the universal, and then I rank the the IC over the the world title, exactly the one that's what Seth Rollins. What I was going to say, Absolutely. because what I mean, you have a universal champion. What, what I, it makes no sense to have a world champion. Yeah. yeah so the especially with Reigns' dominant reign, it's not like I mean he's been the man for the last three years. I I, I, I I was hoping you were going to say that because that was my opinion. I was going to rank the the IC title second over over yeah. Seth's title. I don't I now don't like Seth's I would, title, so <laughs> I think it's like a yeah. Now I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done that unless I mean if it was somebody other than Gunther, I probably wouldn't have bumped up the but the, the guy's just he's really made it relevant. He's he's a great champion. I, I enjoy watching him. Um, I, I think the whole they made a huge mistake creating another world championship because it's it's totally unnecessary. So here's one I know that you're going to want to talk about. We're going to go back to October 21st in 1963 in New York, New York. Absolutely. This is my wheelhouse. So Bruno San Martino and Gorilla Monsoon fought to a draw at Madison Square Garden. And people usually think of the, the jovial, civilized partner of Bobby Heenan when they think of Gorilla Monsoon. And I'm here to tell you that there was a whole nother version of this man. Robert Morella was a superb athlete and scholar at Ithaca College. And, um, but then suddenly moved to Manchuria, lost all his clothes, and, and his memory of the English language. And the great manager, Bobby Davis, allegedly found him wading naked through a, a mountain stream. And that begs the question as to what was Davis doing in Manchuria looking for naked men. Um, but in any event, Bruno and Gorilla had, they had many a war. Yeah, I guess. Uh, they had many a war. And I mean, they wrestled for up to 90 minutes. You know, they make big deals of these Ironman matches. But that was a, a main event at Madison Square Garden. Many, many times went 60 minutes or, or above. And uh, Bruno told a story about uh, there was a match when um, he was wrestling Monsoon. And early in the match, uh, gave him a drop kick, fractured a couple of his ribs, and uh, Monsoon would go on to wrestle. And I guess they went to a 75-minute time limit. Um, and as Archie Bunker would say, when uh, goyles were goyles and men were men. Yep. Yep. Could you, so even though there were the rust holes and everything, they can't do 
modern wrestling can't do Iron Man matches like the past because they're, they don't have the wrestles and they're not telling the stories. You know, that the facial expressions aren't there. The little the little nuances they, they used to sell it aren't, aren't there. And you know, there's no way that these guys could do you know flips and take these crazy bumps for, for 75 minutes or, or an hour. And it's a, it's a really a lost art. You know, look at the size of Gorilla Monsoon. You know, and he didn't blow up after 75 minutes in the ring. That, that's a testament to, to how tough these guys really were. No, Bruno said that Gorilla was a machine. He was very finely conditioned. I mean, yeah, I mean, he was a big guy. But if you look at the look at him like five years before that, it looks totally different. I, I think he might have actually even competed in track and field at Ithaca. I mean, the guy was a, a stellar athlete. But, um, yeah, I, I just – you're right as far as that, that could not happen. Well, think about it, though, for a minute. If, if somebody, if Seth Rollins puts a headlock on, I don't know, give, give me anybody, AJ Styles, how how long before somebody starts saying boring? Yeah. How many seconds? Whereas typically, you know, if Johnny Valentine and Bill Curry were wrestling, uh, I mean, that could be a two-minute spot. Yeah, I mean, And they, they could actually work. I used to love it. They would bring the guy with the headlock to one side of the ring, and they'd, they'd make a, you know, the fans on one side of the arena pop. Then drag him to the other side, make the fans on the other side pop. Told a story to the whole arena, but in the same time, it was telling a story on TV too. Right. No, totally agree. No, and, and a headlock, something simple like a headlock used to get people to pop. Now you got to jump off a you know three story building. Or you even like the test of strength when they lock fingers and they're going back and forth. I mean, Bruno and Superstar Graham, they could we could they could work that for three or four minutes, and you know. It, Billy would get Bruno like he'd start to waver. And then the crowd would get behind Bruno and you'd see Bruno rally. And then maybe like at the end, maybe the heel would cheat and grab some hair. Yeah, and the crowd would go nuts. Groin, something like that. Yeah, right. And then, you know, the, the best would be when the baby face would force the heels hands to the mat and then he'd stomp on, they'd stomp on him. But I mean, something like that. I mean, and we were, we loved that. And, and, but that would, you know, that could take maybe four or five minutes. And we, we never, I mean, I don't ever remember as a, either, you know, a youth or even in my older years, like, you know, my twenties watching wrestling thinking like, man, this is boring. I loved every second of it. So let's move on to 1972 in Tokyo, Japan. All right. And then all Japan wrestling holds its first ever show in Tokyo. And this is an odd combination in the main event. Bruno and Terry Funk defeated Giant Giant Baba and Thunder Sukiyama, which sounds like a porn star, in a uh, two out of three fall match. I just found this very interesting that, you know, Bruno was never a heel in his entire career, never, never once. But when he was in Japan, because Baba was Japan's number one son, and I have to believe that Bruno would pay. I mean, and I've seen it, actually. He played the part of the aggressor, and he did hear some boos. And just a very interesting choice of a partner in Terry Funk. I never, I never heard of them until I researched this. I never knew that they had team. I never thought they were even in the same ring. But um, Bruno, yeah, very young. Uh, Bruno loved Baba. Uh, in fact, uh, at one point, he bought Baba a brand new Cadillac and had it shipped to Japan just as a way of saying thank you because uh, Bruno would have these routinely, you know, three, four week gigs in Japan. And I know that Baba paid him very well and treated him very well. And in fact, I think there was some friction at one point between Bruno and uh, Vince Sr. Because uh, Vince Sr. Uh, 
went uh, turned to Inoki and the New Japan Wrestling, and Bruno would actually absolutely not participate. He didn't like Inoki number one, and number two, his his allegiance was was with Baba, so Bruno would not wrestle for Inoki. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, they, yeah, they was, I hear about the Inoki Baba feud. So that's a uh, that's something I, I am going to look into a little bit more. It's something I haven't had the chance to to really to to research. Uh, but it's a uh, it's pretty crazy. And then you know, obviously Inoki moving on to the it, going into politics and everything is crazy. Yep, rumor has it that Inoki tried to shoot on Bruno in a tag match, and then was, that was a huge mistake. And then Bruno roughed up Anoki a little bit after that and Anoki didn't even he wouldn't even tag in for the rest of the match. <laughs> Let's move on to 1991 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in one of the most iconic segments of all time still talked about to this day. Jake Roberts attacks Randy Savage with the King Cobra at the WWF Superstars taping. Now that that was pretty crazy the stories behind that where Jake went to or where Randy went to Jake ahead of time and made the snake bite Jake just to prove that it wasn't venomous so that Randy would take the bite once they got out to the ring. Ironically, once they got out to the ring, they couldn't get the snake to stop biting Randy Savage. And uh, a week later, the snake was dead. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. What happened? The snake just died. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it, it couldn't uh, it couldn't take the Macho Man blood there. Too much, uh, too much Slim Jim, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that was... But, yeah, I mean... What a holy crap. You talk about like seeing something on TV. And now 1991, I'm 36 years old. I mean, I'm wise to the ways of wrestling. And, you know, by that point, it had become you know, a little bit more of a show. But when I saw that, it's like, holy shit. That, when you saw the blood, you know, you, I mean, obviously the snake was like affixed to Savage's arm. And you see the blood trickling out. I mean, that was that's something I will never forget. Yeah, it's funny. Just the the whole thing got so the, the snake wouldn't let go. It was it was just supposed to be a quick bite, get it off of him. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't let go. And it was, oh, what an angle! That was that was that was crazy. I guess you can't teach an old snake new tricks, right? But now we're gonna move on to the twenty second of October in two thousand one in Kansas City, Missouri. On Monday Night Raw, four champions changed, championships changed hands on that night. You had Tajiri defeating Billy Kidman for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. You had Kurt Angle defeat Rhino for the WCW United States Championship. Bradshaw defeated Hurricane to win the WWF European Championship. Chris Jericho and The Rock defeated the Dudley Boys to win the WWF Tag Team Championship. Well, that was when there were way too many championships in the WWE, you know, soon after the. Uh, the acquisition of the WCW. Uh, at that point, they really, you know, it seems like every other person must have had a title. Yeah, I think there was, I, I mean, they were smart enough to uh, catch on that there was a glut of titles, way too many belts. And uh, they, they very quickly dispensed with the WCW titles. But yeah, uh, back then, yeah, the only one I mean, it was a good way to add, add a, you know, a notch to your belt that you won this championship, but it didn't make any sense. I mean, everybody had a title belt at that point. And if you look, only two of the titles still exist today. That's the United States Championship and the Tag Team Championship. The rest of them have all uh, all disappeared. And again, you know, Bradshaw defeats Hurricane to win the WWF European Championship in Kansas City. In Kansas City. I mean, how many? Wait, so neither one of them is European. And 
<laughs> it's in Missouri. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right. I mean, was the European Championship ever like fought over in Europe? I don't know. Yeah, maybe at one of those London tapings. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that fell by the wayside fairly quickly, and thank God for that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Let's move on to 2017 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where Kurt Angle substitutes for Roman Reigns in a tag team match, representing Kurt Angle's first appearance in the WWF ring in 11 years. That's pretty crazy. I remember in 2006 when he went over to uh, TNA there, and oh, I thought he had burned his bridges and was never going to be in a WWE ring again. You know, his neck surgeries... Uh, Never, never, his substance problems would have never thought he would have been in a, in a WWF ring wrestling again. And he proved me wrong. And then, uh, you know, he had, a, he had a successful run as the, as the GM there. And, you know, Kurt Angle still relevant today. Yeah. No, I love Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle is one of my favorites of all time. And, I mean, just could never get enough of the guy. We, we talked about him last week that, I mean, I was amazed at what he did. I, mean, I knew that his his in-ring work was going to be superb, but his character and his promos were also superb. I I just I to me one of the greatest ever, the total package, you know, legit tough guy, somebody that I would never in a million years mess with. I I think uh, Lesnar even said that the one guy he wouldn't want to tangle with was Kurt Angle, and I could believe that. Did you see? Uh, did you happen to see that Joe Rogan interview with him a couple weeks ago? No, I did not. You know, it was one of the funny stories was uh, he wanted. They were trying to. The, the locker room was trying to round them both up to to wrestle each other, and it just wasn't happening. Wasn't happening. You know, they couldn't. Wasn't happening. But then one day Brock was out there uh, wrestling with Paul White in the ring, and Kurt Angle came out, kicked Paul White out of the ring, and they went at it. Kurt technically won the match. But he said he, you know, he, it was just all out. It was crazy that how tough Brock Lesnar actually was and how strong the guy actually was. Yeah, I, I believe that. But I believe that. Kurt did get the best of him. Yeah, I think they could have given him a little bit of uh, meeting WWE a bit, a bit better send off at the end. But I mean, that's kind of how wrestling goes. So let's go. Let's go back in time to 1942 and Culebra, Puerto Rico. The the great Pedro Morales is born, and uh, you know. So I'm old enough that I remember when uh, when Bruno lost the title at Koloff, and then I was happy that at least the good guy uh, won the title about three weeks later. I think uh, Koloff had the title for I think 21 days. So Pedro beat him in uh, February of 1971 to become the new WWF World Heavyweight Champion. But I was a bit skeptical because I, you know, Bruno was my hero. Uh, I was a Bruno fan through and through. But I have to admit that over time, Pedro grew on me. I, I don't, I think, I mean, let's face it, he was filling impossible shoes. But all in all, I think he did a great job. And um, after losing to uh, Stan Stasiak on December 1st, 1973, so he held a title almost three years. Uh, Pedro toured the country. Uh, he worked for the different territories. Then he worked in AWA for a while. He worked for all of them. But um, came back to the WWF. And I was really surprised. They, they put the Intercontinental title on him twice. And I thought he did a great job as the IC champion. And uh, I loved uh, when Pedro would interview uh, 
uh, with Vince McMahon. Uh, his his catchphrase was, "I ready for any kind of action." Uh, with Vince, and yes, yes, you were Pedro. You were ready for any kind of action. Just great wrestler, great you know, great champion. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see Pedro at his prime. I have seen some of the matches you know, uh, on tape and stuff like that, but I got to see him in the uh, the eighties when a lot of times he he ended up jobbing out and stuff like that. Unfortunately, but from you know, everything I understand, you know how legendary that he was, and you know Pedro definitely deserves a. Uh, Deserves the accolades that he that he's gotten. Absolutely, like I said, I mean, I was, I, I was, I mean, literally heartbroken when Bruno lost the title, and I, I was praying that he'd win it again. And I saw that Pedro won it. Well, oh, at least it, at least it's not co-op. I mean, co-op was the he, he was evil, of course. Uh, and uh, but over time, you know, it just it was, he was a fighting champion. He was a good champion. He took, you know. It was good. I mean, the, the language thing was kind of like a little bit of a barrier, I think, you know, as far as his promos. But I mean, he was he was absolutely beloved in New York. You know, and he was really, if you think about it, him and Bruno, I mean, after that, then he was the last ethnic champion. There's a you know, huge Puerto Rican contingency in uh in New York City. But after that, they went to uh they went to Backland and it became more of an, an American thing then. Well, Betty, it uh, looks like we got through the, the end of the topics on the week. Uh, that was a pretty cool talk talk about all this all this awesome history. Uh, last week, oh yeah, last week I didn't get a chance to ask you at the end, and I meant to. It just uh, <laughs> forgot. Which of these Which of these events do you think had the biggest impact in wrestling history? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, uh, it took me a while to figure out what I thought, and uh, but it, I, I think I got one. All right. Well. Tell you what, I'm going to come up with mine. I mean, I think all in all, uh, let's see. I got to look at these. I shame on me. I, I should have anticipated you asking me this. Um, I'm going to go with the last one with Pedro because, I mean, Pedro kept the WWF, WWWF going for three years until, uh, you know, until Bruno was ready for another run. But I'm going to have to. I- disagree on this one but you you may be right but unfortunately i wasn't around in that era to to kind of feel that but i was going to say the uh the tag team ladder match with the hardy boys and edge and christian because yes that, that led into so many crazy crazy matches and honestly that was one of the highlights of the attitude era absolutely no i i would totally agree with you on that but uh you know i, I can't disagree with you that pedro you know pedro's influence is you know, you can't deny that. That's three years of WWF that uh, the WWF that that he held. That he held right, and he came back, and like you said, sadly at the very end, I, I think he might have even wrestled under a mask at the end too. But I mean, it's a shame. All these guys, like a Dominic Danucci, a Baron Cicluna, you know, a lot of people remember them if they're younger. They remember those last couple of years. And what they don't know is like the 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 huge body of work that these guys had before that. You know, Cicluna was a world champion in Australia. So was Danucci, Pedro. I mean, of course, Pedro was the the WWF champion for almost three years. Faced everybody, sold out the Garden numerous times. You know, was on was on top. And I mean, the guy everywhere he went was on top. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, awesome. So, uh, so why don't we first of all why don't we plug Dan and Betty in the ring for this week? Yes, sir. Yeah, Dan and Benny in the ring uh, every Tuesday night. And like I said, 
Our guest this week is uh, a BWC graduate and uh, independent wrestler Donald J. Bitton. Um, coming off a great interview with uh, Harvey Whippleman, a, a, well, Bruno Lauer, a.k.a. Harvey, Harvey Whippleman, a.k.a. Uh, Dr. Leonard Spazinski, which most people don't know. That was his first gimmick. And that was given to him by uh, Newton Tatry, who actually trained him, who was the, one of the original Mongols who wrestled with, uh, uh, he was uh, Beppo, I believe, Mongol. They had Beppo and Guido. Guido was Nikolai. And then uh, a superstar, Bill Eady, became Bolo Mongol. So, yeah. Um, but uh, we look forward to the stories that uh, Mr. Bitton is going to tell us. And we have many, many great guests uh, coming up. I can't wait. And then what's going on on Thursday? Thursday night, man. It's, it's the four of us one more time. See who's the best. I mean, you're, you're a duo, both myself, Bruce, well, I, I and... Uh, a little bias against me. So I, yeah, well, I, you might want to hire the services. Uh, what was that guy's name? Clarence Mason? I've already talked to Chubb. Oh, or, or, yeah. yeah or, I, that, already, I literally... Uh, it was probably 10 o'clock right after the uh, the second show aired. Chubby was on the phone with me. Yeah. Yeah, with that, that law firm of Dewey, Dewey Cheatham and Howe, man. You, you, you got to go with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, if you didn't catch last week's episode, you got to. You'll, you'll see what, what we're talking about on that. And then after that, we have uh, this the, uh, the main show, Money and the Pharaoh show at 9 p.m. I know they have a guest this week. Is it a... Uh, Oh, no, uh, it's not Buff Bagwell, but Buff is coming up in a couple of weeks. Buff's uh, coming up, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure who's on this week, but they do have a guest. And then uh, what about the uh, true crime? Yeah, in fact, I'm going to be taping that in about another 77, 76 minutes uh, with the legendary. What's that? I said, you're quite busy today. Yeah, I'm a busy guy. Yeah, and then I got, you know, like I said, that all the people are outside just waiting for me to make an appearance in my own mind, of course. But yeah, I'm going to be taping with uh, Brittany Brown, who was a legendary uh, Boston female wrestler, the Boston bad girl, the siren of Situate. So the first episode of True Crime with the bad girl and the playa. We're going to cover the uh, the, the uh, Boston Strangler case, which now you talk about talking about something so many years later. People are still talking about this case, and it started in 1962. So. Just a, a, a you know very very impactful case, very controversial. Awesome. And the only other thing I've got is the after show will be back in a few weeks, and the oh nice, the, all right. The first interview will be Michael Monty himself, and I got some, all right. I've got some stuff for him. I've watched him take over interviews. He's a hard man to interview because he likes to take over, but uh, I think I got some stuff for him. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Why don't you uh, you want to take us out out of here? Well, thanks for uh, for watching and listening, and we appreciate your support. And uh, like like Bruce said, don't forget to tune in on Thursday for the main show. And this uh, this week in pro wrestling, when we all vie for the title one more time. And you folks have a great week. Later. <laughs>